Well, as I start this teaching, I want you to imagine telling a little boy, maybe first or second grade, that the day is going to come in his life where he finds himself drawn to a member of the opposite sex. That someday he's going to grow up and actually like girls. You know, usually you tell that to a little boy and it's like, no, girls have cooties. Girls are disgusting. You know, I am not going. And you tell that little boy, no, the day is coming in your life where you're going to want to hold a little girl's hand. You're going to want, going to, want to kiss a girl. And one day, maybe even, you are going to want to get married to one and spend the rest of your life with her. When you tell a little boy that, usually the answer is going to be, no, there's no way on earth. They have cooties. I do not want to have anything to do with them. But then, quite often, the way it works is they grow, they age, and something begins to happen inside of them. And all of a sudden, this day comes where they realize, I actually do like girls. And they find themselves drawn and attracted to the opposite sex. And then, potentially, a day comes where they find themselves married. What has happened inside of them is that this thing that they thought that they would never experience, this thing that they thought they would never feel, is something that has been rewired inside of them, and they feel it. They desire it. They long for something that they thought they would never previously desire. And I say that because, to me, that is a great illustration of what is called in the Bible the New Covenant. You see, in the Old Testament, God would write his word upon tablets of stone. You know, he took his word and he wrote it upon the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. But all along the way, God promised that a day would come where he wrote his word one day upon the hearts of human flesh. That from the inside out, there would be a change, a transformation. And that's what we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. We enter into an age called the new covenant rather than the old covenant age, where what God is doing by his spirit in the life of his believers is he is shaping us inwardly so that the things that maybe previously in our lives we thought we would never want to do, or that we maybe even knew were right to do, but we found no inward motivation to do them, by the new covenant, God actually changes that inward motivation to where we begin to want the things that God wants. We begin to desire the things that God desires. And the reason I'm saying all of this today is because in David's life here in 1 Samuel chapter 26, God has brought his man in this episode to really a new and beautiful place where some of the things that God was trying to write onto his heart are now written in his heart. And as we move through this passage, we're going to see four different things that David wanted that he previously had not wanted, but because he'd walked with the Lord and the Spirit of God was working in his life and shaping his life, he actually had come to the place of wanting these things. In a sense, 1 Samuel chapter 26 is a little bit of a completion of a specific 
trilogy in David's life. 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26 are clearly meant to go together. In chapter 24, David is tested in the cave. You remember that story? Uh, in, in the cave, the temptation was, will I kill Saul? Will I take matters into my own hands and take this man's life, though he's right there sitting in front of me? In chapter 25, the temptation was, will I kill Nabal, who has been unfair to me and has treated me unjustly? And in chapter 26, God is going to bring David into the camp of Saul while Saul is sleeping and in pursuit of David's life. And again, for a third time, the question is going to be, will you, David, take matters into your own life? And he is going to pass the test today with flying colors, and we're going to see a man whose heart, over time and through trials and prayer and difficulty, has been shaped beautifully and radically by God. My theme for today's teaching is this. It's a mark of maturity and a work of the Spirit when a person internally wants what God wants. David, through the repetitive work of the Spirit, came to want what God wanted. So as we move through this story, I'm going to try to show you four different things that David wanted that we should want, but I'm going to tell them to you today, not so that you can simply say, okay, check, I'm going to do that from this day forward, because the reality is there's going to be times where you're unable, just like I'm unable to do some of these four things. But what I'm trying mostly to show you is that this is the destination that the Holy Spirit of God is trying to take all of us to uh, as he shapes and writes the law of God upon our hearts internally. So it's something for us to do, but it's also a hope for us to have as far as the place that God is taking our lives. Okay, you guys with me? So let's read. Uh, verse 1 through 6 together to see kind of the scene uh, unfold. It says, verse 1, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, as I'm reading those two verses, some of you might be saying to yourself, man, this sounds really familiar to me. And if it sounds familiar to you, it's because in chapter 23 and in chapter 24, a very similar thing occurred. First of all, the Ziphites, who had a panoramic view of the valley that David was hiding in, they had discovered in chapter 23 David's location, and they went and told Saul. They do the same thing here. They learn again of David's location, and they go and tell Saul. And then in chapter 24, when Saul heard it, he did the same thing he does here. He gets 3,000 choice Israelite soldiers to go and pursue David in the wilderness. So, verse 3, it says, And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. That's verbatim where the Ziphites had told Saul David was hiding, and so he just goes to that spot. But David remained in the wilderness. He's hiding. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. 
Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around, around him. Now this is where the story begins to take a different turn from the events in chapter 24. David hears that Saul is pursuing him. In chapter 24, David knows that, but he's just hiding in a cave. But here, he hears that Saul is pursuing him, and he sends out spies to learn of Saul's specific location. He learns that Saul is in this specific place, and so he goes down and views with his own eyes, there's Saul. Somehow, he's able to tell that as the army of Israel is sleeping during the night, that Saul is in the middle of the 3,000 soldiers as they are all encamped around him. It might be that Saul had a specific spear that sort of was an indication or some kind of visible, maybe a tent, something like that, that communicated the king is right there in the middle of the camp. Now put yourself in David's sandals for a moment and consider how discouraging it would be to see that all of Saul's crying and weeping from chapter 24, all of Saul's apologies in chapter 24, oh, I'm such a bad man, you're going to be the future king in Israel, you're my son, after all, you married my daughter. Imagine all of the disappointment that David was going through in that moment. You see, Saul's repentance was the 1 Corinthians kind of repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul mentioned that there is a worldly sorrow that exists. It's sad for a moment, it cries for a moment, it looks real for a moment, but over the long haul, it does not last. I've learned over the years that it's not so much what the visible manifestation of a person's response, that visible response doesn't tell me a whole lot. It's over time. And over time, Saul had proved to be a man whose repentance was very shallow. And so David probably was very discouraged by this whole thing. And so he made a move. Rather than going out deeper into hiding, he made a move in verse 6. Let's read of it together. It says, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Now here, David looks like he is just playing crazy. I mean, he makes a decision now. Enough is enough. You know, I've been pursued by this man. He's chased me into the wilderness, and I am ready to confront him. But before he goes, he asks these two figures, one of them named Ahimelech, who was a Hittite man, and another guy named Abishai, whose mother was named Zariah, and whose brother was named Joab. Now, a little bit about these two guys. First, Ahimelech. Let me tell you what we know about Ahimelech. It's right there in verse 6. He was a Hittite. That's all we know. Uh, the Bible says nothing else about this guy. There are no other verses about this man. This is his only appearance in the Bible. It's a brief little cameo. He had an invitation given to him from David. Do you want to go with me down into the camp of Saul. And as we'll read the story, he was not there with David when he went down into the camp of Saul. And so the intimation is that he declined David's invitation. But that's all we know about him. His name is Ahimelech. He apparently had some skills. David invited him, but he said no. 
The second figure, a man named Abishai, what we know about him is that he was actually David's nephew. You see, David had a sister who was named Zariah, and Zariah had three sons who actually were, became real comrades with David. Probably the way that it worked is that since David was the eighth son of Jesse, he was very young, and so it's very easy to imagine that his older sister Zariah, uh, born years before he was born, had three sons who, although they were David's, uh, he was they were David's nephews, they were probably right around the same age. And so they probably grew up together, maybe even looking up a little bit uh, to David, who would have been their youngest uncle, you know, kind of relating to him in that kind of way. Now these three guys, the sons of Zariah, became great warriors on David's behalf. Uh, great warriors, but also a great headache a lot of times for David. Uh, there are plenty of times in David's life where the thing that he says after some nutty thing that Joab or Ab- Abishai or their third brother Asahel does is he'll, David will say, oh, you sons of Zariah. And so it's just kind of a way of saying like, man, you guys, you're too much for me. I can't stop you. I can't contain you. I can't keep you from doing whatever it is that you want to do. But Abishai became a powerful man for David. There was a point in Abishai's life where he would go out and slay 300 men all by himself. The Bible also says that there was a time where he went out into a battle and slayed with forces that were with him 18,000 Edomites in defense of the people of Israel. Uh, He became the fourth greatest member of David's army, a a mighty man, a soldier with great skill. And and a day came in David's life where in his older age, one of Goliath's sons, remember Goliath that David had killed, one of Goliath's sons who remained alive, a guy with a great name, his name was Ishbi Benob. Ishbi Benob wanted to kill David, and in his older age, he almost got to him, but Abishai would actually rise up and save David's life. He was used greatly by the Lord for David and for Israel. And I'm making a big deal about all of that because here, both of these men are invited to be used by God. Both of these men are invited into David's mission. One apparently said no, while the other said yes. And because he said yes, more and more doors were opened up in his life. It is good for us to say yes to our Lord when he asks us to step forward in obedience to him. All right, so let's see what happens when they go down into the camp in verse 7. It says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. So there's Saul with his spear in the ground. Abner's the commander of his army and then his whole army there around him, kind of a protective layer. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I like this Abishai guy. You know, he looks at David, and there they are. They sneak in. And what we're going to learn later in the text is that a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon the army of Israel and upon Saul and Abner. So that's how they got all the way there without being noticed by any watchman or anyone like that. And Abishai was astute. He looks around and he's like, man, this is from God. 
I mean, these people are sleeping. We're walking through here. There's no meeting that's going to happen. There's no battle that's going to take place. They are just out. God has done this. And he interprets that as God has delivered your enemy into your hand. And so he makes a request. He says, let me take the man's spear. This is the spear, after all, that Saul had thrown multiple times at David to try to take David's life. He says, let me take that spear and pin Saul to the ground. And then I I love his bravado. He says, basically, I won't even need to strike him twice. It will be one shot and we're out, you know, kind of thing. So that was was Abishai. I, I love this guy. Three times in the Bible, Abishai is recorded as having spoken. And all three times that Abishai speaks, he requests that David will let him kill someone. That's that's Abishai. Three different mo- movements in David's life. Let me kill that guy. Can I kill that guy? Can I kill that guy? So finally a moment came in his life where he killed a guy without asking David and it got him into some trouble, which we'll see as we move through David's life. But David, verse 9, said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That phrase, deep sleep from the Lord, is the same phrase that's used to describe the deep sleep that came upon Adam in the Garden of Eden when God put him to sleep and pulled from his side to the raw material with which to make Eve. So the sleep was very deep indeed. It had come from the Lord. Now the thing that I want you to see here, I remember I talked to you and I told you that You know, David is kind of coming to a place of arrival here. There are some things that the Spirit has been working in David's life over the years as he's been running from Saul. And there are some lessons that he's learned and some conclusions that he's come to. There are some things that have been written upon his heart that he would actually say, I now want this. Things that he probably didn't want earlier in his life, but he wants them now because God has shaped him in this way. And the thing that I want you to see that he wanted comes from verse 11. It's just the simple word that he spoke to Abishai. He said, again, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, David had become convinced that there were one of three outcomes that Saul would experience. Either God would strike him. That was option number one. Now David had learned that, because he had watched the Nabal episode unfold. He had told 400 of his men to strap on their swords to go and kill Nabal. But then Abigail, Nabal's wife, interceded for Nabal and also for David and said, don't do this. You don't want to have blood on your hands. You don't want to be guilty of murder of an innocent man. So don't do this thing. And David held himself back. But remember what happened in the story. He was struck with first a stroke, and then 10 days later, the Lord, it says, struck him and 
he died. And so David learned that God could take care of him. God could take care of his enemies. And so he thought option number one is that perhaps the Lord will strike Saul. Option number two, he says, is or his day will come to die. In other words, he's just going to die naturally. Perhaps a sickness will come into his life. Maybe it will be old age. I might be having to wait a long time before Saul uh, moves on and, and I'm able to become king. He'll, he'll die naturally. Or number three, he will die in battle and perish. And so David thought either the Lord will handle it or he'll die of old age or the Philistines, an enemy will handle it. Notice that David believed strongly that he would have nothing to do with Saul's death. It wasn't going to be him. It was going to be the Lord, old age, or the Philistines. And what David was confessing as he confessed this is that he was trusting God for his future. He was going to lean upon the Lord in a way that he did not lean upon the Lord at the beginning of the episode with Nabal. And so what you're seeing David say, here's my first thing, he would say, I trust God with my life. I trust God with my life. Now I realize that that's a concept. That's a statement. That's something that we can say out loud. That is a pretty easy thing for us to say, but also a pretty easy thing for us to mean in a very half-hearted kind of way. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, to really trust the Lord with your life. It's very easy to say, I trust the Lord with my life, but to take every situation in my life and manipulate it and try to get my own way. It's very easy to say that I trust the Lord with my life, yet stress out to no end and worry about things that are outside of my control. It's very easy to say, I trust the Lord with my life, but continue to live my life according to my own dictates and my own standard and my own you know, view of the way that things should go. It's much harder to say, I trust God with my life and to actually live it out. But that's where the Spirit had brought David to this beautiful place of trusting God. It says in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. There in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, the word trust, to trust the Lord in all your heart, it's a word that indicates to lie helpless face down. It's a kind of word that would be used to describe a servant that is waiting for the word of their master or a conquered soldier that is waiting for the word of the conquering general, saying, I'm leaning on you, I'm trusting you. Whatever you say for my life is what I want to receive. We're to trust the Lord with all our heart. Moses was a man who had great trust in the Lord. Think about what it was like to be Moses. I mean, you grow up, you don't remember or recall that you came from Hebrew stock and lineage, and you're being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, you're the grandson, so to speak, of the most powerful man in the world. You've got riches, education, prosperity, whatever you want, it's at your fingertip. But as time goes on, you begin to discover, 
No, I'm, I'm actually Hebrew. Racially, I'm Hebrew. I'm, I'm part of the people that the Egyptians have enslaved. And a moment comes in your life where you feel the tug of God's Spirit upon your heart. And He begins to call you, not to identify with the Egyptians, but to identify with the Hebrews. Not to be known as the grandson of Pharaoh with all the prestige that would be attached to that, but to be known as one of the people that is enslaved by the Egyptians. But it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. To me, that is incredible trust, amen? Trusting God, stepping out, saying, look, it's comfortable for me here in Pharaoh's palace, and it's comfortable for me in the, in the Egyptian way of doing things, and I have prosperity, and I have prestige, and I have fame, but I don't have the Lord. I don't have God. I don't have my heritage in Him, and I'm going to step away from all of that and trust God with my life. And so just know that as you step into what God has for your life, and as you step out of worldliness and the old system and all of that, God is faithful. He is worth trusting. He is trustworthy. All right, so David was able to say, I trust God with my life. Notice the second thing that David said. It happens in what occurs next in the story in verse 13. So let's read that together. It says, then David went over to the other side. And stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? So he's kind of challenging his uh, masculinity there a little bit. He says, Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. I don't think David was talking about himself. I think he was talking about his nephew, Abishai. He says, for this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, verse 16, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So David does this very strategic thing in this moment. He's got the jug of water, he's got the spear of Saul, and they sneak back out of the camp, and they get a decent distance away from the camp, and David begins to shout. And obviously God lifts the deep sleep that he had put upon Saul and his men, and they begin to wake up. And David shouts specifically first to this guy named Abner. He's Saul's commander, And he accuses Abner uh, of being negligent in his duties. He actually says, you deserve to die. And as we read through that, some of you might have said to yourself, man, that seems kind of harsh for David to say, you know, something like that. But you have to remember, David was a military man. And he had just come into the camp without anybody spotting him. 
No, nobody noticing him, no guard set. He's walked in, he's walked out. He looks at that as a great offense. You should not treat the king of Israel like that. And so he says to Abner in front of everyone, you deserve to die. And that's very interesting because later on in Abner's life, once David was the king in Israel, uh, Abishai, who was here witnessing these words, would actually be partly responsible for Abner's death along with his brother Joab. He heard this whole thing happened. He said, David said, you deserve to die. But what I want you to see is the way that David went about proving his own innocence. He says to them at the end of verse 16, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. In other words, David does this whole thing. He goes into the camp. He takes the jug of water. He takes the spear. Remember when David cut the corner of Saul's robe, how convicted he was in his heart about that? It seems that the conviction that he had came from the symbol, the symbol of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe would have said, I'm cutting off part of your kingdom. That was a kingly robe. But to take the spear and to take the jug, it was like no thing to David. He knew, I'm going to give it back here in a moment, but I need it. I need it for a purpose. What was the purpose that David was trying to prove? By holding that jug in his hand, by holding that spear in his hand, by shouting it out loud to the soldiers of Israel and to Abner, what would have happened? They would have scrambled around. Does he really have Saul's spear? Does he really have Saul's jug? And as Saul looked around, he'd say, yeah, my spear, it's not here. My jug of water, it's not here. He must have come right here next to me and yet not have taken my life. What was David doing? David was going to great lengths to prove his innocence and to have a clear conscience, not only before God, but also before man. This is the second thing that I think is so beautiful that God had written upon David's heart. He would have said this, number two. He would have said, I strive to have a clear conscience. I strive to have a clear conscience. And the conscience that David had developed was not just one that was clear before God. He already knew that. What he was trying to do was to demonstrate to the people in his life, trying to give them visible things that they could observe, that they could see, that they could hold, tangible elements that showed them this man is clean. This man's life is clean. This is a heart that is very similar to Paul the Apostle. Paul said things like this over and over again in his ministry. In fact, if you just search through your Bible, the word conscience and the writings of Paul, you'll see over and over again him him speaking about his desire to serve God with a clear conscience. But Acts 24, verse 16, he says it like this, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and God man. We must become a people who fight to have a clear conscience, not just with God, but a clear conscience before the people that God has placed in our lives as well. You know, it's a sad thing when a person says, you know, my walk with God, it's very personal. No one needs to know about it. No one needs to be invited into it. And what I do and the way that I live my life, it is my business and my business alone. No, it's good for us to realize that God wants to build a team in our lives. He's going to put friends in your life. 
He's going to put co-laborers in Christ in your life. He might put a spouse in your life. He might put pastors in your life or elders in your life. He's going to put people in your life that it is fine and good and advisable to say, here is the work that I am going to do to make sure that you can see that my life is clean, that you can see that my life is clear. Don't just take my word for it, but here are the elements that can help you see that very thing. Uh, I think it's good for us you know, to, to say, you know, I want what I do on my devices, for instance. That's not a private thing that no one should know about. I want to invite the right people in my life into that world. I want them to know where I'm going online. Uh, there's going to be people in my life that I want them to know what I'm doing with my finances. I want to invite them into that. I want them to be able to know how I'm spending and, and what I'm doing. And I'm going to take the steps to make sure that they know about those things in my life. You know, for me, whenever I travel, I always bring somebody with me. Because I like for somebody to just kind of be watching my life. And on the rare occasion where I'm unable to bring somebody with me, I got all kinds of trackers on all my devices, and I'm calling people the second I get on a plane and the second I get off a plane because I want people to have that information. I want my life to be exposed. I want to have a clear conscience with God, but I also want to have a clear conscience with people that are in my life. And David had this to a great degree. He was working so hard to have a clear conscience. Now let's see, see what happens next in verse 17. It says, Saul recognized David's voice. And he said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servants? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord, the king, Hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David is always super poetic, and uh, here he goes after it again. One of his favorite illustrations of himself was of a flea. Uh, in chapter 24 in the cave episode, it was a flea on the back of a dead dog. Uh, here, it's a single flea or like one hunting a partridge in the mountains. You know, he's just like, Saul, you know, what are you doing? And I, I'm, I'm guiltless, I'm, I'm innocent, you know, and all of that. It's beautiful what he says to Saul. You know, he, he really does give Saul the benefit of the doubt. You know, he, he basically says, look, if the Lord is the one who's made you do this, you know, if, if the Lord has put it on your heart to pursue me, then that must mean that I have some sin in my life and maybe the Lord will accept an offering. Uh, but but if, it's, if it's people that have told you bad things about me, if, if it's humans that have put these weird ideas in your mind about me, then, then let them be cursed by the Lord. Like I said, he's really giving Saul the benefit of the doubt because he didn't talk about the third and actual option. The, if it's from the depths of your wicked heart that you have come out to kill me, Saul, then you should be cursed. He didn't go there. He's like, maybe it's the Lord. Maybe it's other people. But I promise you, I am innocent. 
But the thing that I want you to see in this statement from David is the major concern that he had. Notice it at the end of verse 19 and on into verse 20. What he said was, when I'm driven out of Israel and I'm out here in the wilderness on the run, I'm not free to go to the temple. I'm not free, or the tabernacle. I'm not free to worship the Lord in that kind of way. I'm not free to, in peace, enjoy the land that God has given to his people, the people of Israel. So, he says, I have no share in the heritage of the Lord. He said, it's like they're saying to me, go serve other gods. And right now, I'm nervous that my blood is going to fall to the earth away from, verse 20, the presence of the Lord. I mention all of those phrases from David because I want you to see that the big bummer in David's life was not that he couldn't live in the palace anymore. The big bummer in David's life was not that he couldn't go home to Michael every night. I mean, he wanted those things. They would have been meaningful to him. But the big disappointment that David was battling with was that he was, as he was being forced out of Israel, he was forced away from the presence of the Lord. He was forced away from the things of God. He was forced or being told, in essence, to go and serve other gods. His greatest pain was not being removed from the luxuries of the palace, but being removed from the presence of the Lord. Now, some of you might be sitting here today saying to yourself, well, now hold on a second. The Lord, the presence of the Lord, how can you be driven from the presence of the Lord? Isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere at all times? Isn't he all over the place? Isn't there no place that he does not exist? And if that's what you're thinking, that's accurate. That's true. God is everywhere. And, and David knew that. He was the guy who wrote Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10, where he said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David knew that God was everywhere and that there was no place that he could go from God's presence. Still, here in this passage, he tells Saul, I have been driven from the presence of the Lord. So which is it? Is, he, is, is God's presence everywhere? Or is there an actual possibility of being driven from the presence of the Lord? Well, here's the answer. David knew something that I think many times modern believers often forget. He knew that God's presence was everywhere on one hand. But he also knew that God had designed specific things for his people at that time in that era, the people of Israel, that when they enjoyed those specific things, God's presence would be especially there. In other words, when David was hiding in a cave in En Gedi, God was there, but not in the same way as when David was offering a sacrifice in the tabernacle fellowshipping and worshiping God according to the dictates of his word that he'd given to the people of Israel. These are what modern theologians or Christian theologians would call the means of grace that God gives and or channels of grace. In other words, I know that God is down at the beach right now, 
but I also see in his word that there is something beautiful about the assembling of his people, his saints, together. So that as much as he is down there, he is especially present right here with us as we open up his word. I believe that the teaching of his word, the breaking open of of his uh, scripture is another means of his grace. As you go through the New Testament, it seems that things like baptism or the Lord's Supper or praying for one another or worship or giving and generosity or fellowship or evangelism or personal ministry to other individuals, these are all in the New Testament recorded for us as means of God's grace. So for David, when he said, that's what I want more than anything, then what we would be saying when the Lord is maturing our heart to get to that point is that we would say, I want the specific place that God is. I'm glad that he's everywhere, but I want to be in the places that he is especially present. I know that he's with me throughout every you know, kind of thing in life, but I know that he's especially present in his word, so I want to get into his word. I know that he's, he's cruising with me all throughout life, but he, he, I know that he's especially present when I open up my heart and I pray to him. I know that he's with me throughout all of life, but I know that he's especially present when believers get together and talk about him or pray for each other. And that's what I long for. That's what I desire is I want to be where God is. That's what David would have said. I want to be where God is. Okay, I've said three things to you. I mean, I've said way more than three things to you, but three main things. You know, he he said here, I want to be where God is, you know, he said, I strive for a clear conscience, and he said, I trust God with my life. But let's look at this final thing, and to be honest with you, this might be the most important of all of the things that I've said to you today. Let's look and read it through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 21. It says, then David said, I have sinned. Return, my son, then Saul said, excuse me, I have sinned. He said, return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted very foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. So David was grateful for what Saul had said, but he still wasn't going to go down into the camp to return the spear himself. He said, send a young man to come and take it. Then he said, verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, verse 24, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, verse 25, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. This was, again, a little bit of a prophecy from Saul. He'd admitted in the cave episode that David would be king one day, and so here he's hinting at that same idea. You're going to do many things and will succeed in them. So David, at the end of verse 25, went his way, and Saul returned to his place. What I want you to see here is both what David did not say and what David did say. 
Notice how he said in verse 24, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. That line from David is such a deep mark of maturity. And dare I say, Christian maturity. Because as you're reading it, you would expect almost that what he would say would be, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in your sight. In other words, it almost seems as if he would naturally say to Saul, Saul, look, you know, I've treated you really well. I've been in the cave with you. I've got into the midst of camp with you. There have been multiple times where it would have been very easy for me to take my life. And though you have tried to kill me multiple times, I have never extended my hand to you. So as, my, as your life has been precious this day in my sight, please, could you return the favor? Could you let my life be precious in your sight? But that is not at all what David says. Notice what he says. He says, instead, let my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. In other words, what David was doing was this huge thing that I guarantee you, if you can get this, it will change all of your relationships. Because what he was doing is he was saying, I am going to treat Saul in a certain way. I'm going to treat his life as valuable. I'm going to treat his life as precious. Even when people are telling me he's crazy and you know that he's a madman and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to speak with reverence and respect. I'm going, to, I'm going to honor him. I'm going to honor his life. And as I treat his life as precious, I'm not necessarily waiting for the moment when he will return the favor. Although I think all of us would admit that David probably would vote for it if he could. But he understood, I cannot control how Saul responds to me. But I'm going to treat him that way, and what I'm hoping for, what I desire, what I delight in, is then that God would treat me in the way that I have treated Saul. That is a huge mark of Christian maturity. Because really what David wanted was God's grace. He knew that he was not merely asking for God to just kind of treat him the way he treated Saul. He was asking God to treat him better than he treated Saul. You see, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what he did not mean was, hey, is there someone in your life that could use some mercy? Extend them mercy, and guess what is going to happen? They are going to give you some mercy in return. No, that's not what he meant. What he meant was, as you show mercy, there is a God in heaven who sees your life, and he will extend mercy to you. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? There's a line in there. I'm sure some of you have been confused by it at times. The line is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's an interesting thing for Christians to pray because what we know through the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our debts have completely been paid for in Christ Jesus. God the Father looks upon you and he sees the righteousness of his only begotten son. You have the righteousness, the status of Jesus Christ deposited into your account if you're a believer today. So what would somebody like that who's been forgiven by God of everything 
be doing saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not that we're asking God to reapply forgiveness to us in the sense of re-save me. It's, it's a sense in which we're saying, God, what I desire is that you would make my heart and my life more clean. And I want to really feel that forgiveness. I want to experience that forgiveness of debt. I know that I have it in Christ, but I want to live it out. I want to experience it. So as I am forgiving others, I pray that you would pour out the crushing experience of that freedom from, from sin and forgiveness upon my life and upon my heart. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It is a huge mark of Christian maturity to come to the place where you're able to say, I'm not looking for the person to treat me any differently. I'm looking to treat them well, but I'm expecting the favor and the grace of God to flow upon my life as I live the way that is becoming of being a child of God. Maybe a way to illustrate this would be in Christian marriage. You know, most people think of marriage as a contract between two individuals. You know, a document that's signed, and it's kind of, in most people's minds, a 50-50 proposition, you know, like a business deal, you know, like I do my thing, and you do your thing, and as long as you do your part, I'll do, you know, my part. And, and so if I'm nice to you on Monday then I am expecting that you will be nice to me on Tuesday. That's just the way it goes. And if there's too many Mondays that I'm nice to you and, and, and then you're not nice to me on Tuesday, then I feel like you're not doing your part and so this marriage is in danger. But in Christian marriage, it's not a contract, it's a covenant. A covenant is a 100-100 experience. I'm going to do 100%. I'm going to give myself completely. I'm going to be faithful in this thing because I'm doing this before the Lord. And there might be times where it's 100 and you're given 10, or 100 and you're given 20, or 100 and you're given .001. But I am going to do this because I'm not looking to you, I'm looking to God. I'm looking to God to be the one who blesses my life and cares for my soul. This truth can change your every human interaction. It can change your relationship with your children if God has blessed you with them. It can change your relationship with the political world and atmosphere and scene and politicians. It can change your uh, relationship with coworkers or employers. It can change your relationship with non-believers. It can change your relationship with the friends that God has placed in your life. If you can come to the place of saying like David, this is it, I want God's grace, not people's payback. Can you get to that place in your life? Man, that's what the Spirit, the Spirit is trying to do that in your life. It's very Christ-like to say, what I really want is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than, hey, I did something nice for you. You should do something nice for me. They say that the, because Jesus called us to be servants, he called us to be slaves. They say that you'll know whether you're serving well the first time somebody treats you like a servant. How do you respond? How do you feel in that moment? Do you think, man, I'm glad that the Lord will be the one who takes care of me? So man, David, what a place of maturity he came to in this episode in his life. And this will be actually the last time that Saul and David interact with each other face to face. Saul still is going to try to kill David. 
and Saul will eventually die over the next, over the next couple weeks. We'll see Saul die. We've got some wild stuff coming up in the next few chapters. Uh, but this is the last time that these two men see each other.